What an unusual place to finish our reading today at Exodus 20 and verse 2 there. <laughs> when, you know, there's a bit that we all know, you know, the Ten Commandments that, that was only just about to start in the next verse. Well, we're trying to understand God's covenants in this series. And it wouldn't really be fair to start looking at this next covenant today by, by looking at that famous scripture of the Ten Commandments. Because as it happens, that the things that God is about to ask his people to do there as, as their part in this covenant actually came after what he had already done for them. So I think that we should focus, in, uh, first of all, instead on, on the context of this covenant that actually frames those laws that we know so well. And reading through that context as we did in chapter 19 and landing our reading on chapter 20 and verses 1 and 2, that lets God frame all of this correctly for us. And as the reading finished, in chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that, in turn, is exactly what God had promised he would do. 450-odd years earlier, when he made covenant with Abraham, if you remember last week's text in Genesis 15. Jog your memory, Genesis 15, verse 13, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. So so rescue and plunder and a land that is not theirs. God has well and truly already blessed this nation of Israel before they were then given the law that's coming. If you do want to go ahead and read the next section of Exodus a little bit later in your own time. So we therefore end up, I guess, with the question, you know, if they already stood in God's promised blessing, then why was the law given to Israel here at Mount Sinai? And to understand that, we need to zoom out and, and think about covenant, the, the covenant that God is now making with them. Yes, he has already saved Israel from slavery. But if we recall from previous weeks, so too God is doing something else in this narrative. He, he's doing something specific through people and Specifically here we see that Israel will function towards God's plan by being a nation of priests to him. As he himself says very clearly in the scripture we did read today in chapter 19 and verse 3, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
to the context of this covenant at Sinai that we're looking at today. The context that is for for Israel in God's unfolding blessing through history was that they would now be his people, a kingdom of priests to him and a holy nation. And they're set aside, therefore, by God for himself. And to be set aside by God from all the other nations as as a people for God, well, (laughs) that is the fundamental definition of what it means to be holy. To be holy primarily means to be set aside for God. So God is making Israel holy here by setting them aside for himself. And they are therefore now to be holy, in the second sense of that word, holy, which is probably the one that we're more familiar with. They are set aside as holy to God, so therefore they now must also be holy. They must live in a way that is fitting of God's purposes for them, a way that reflects the fact that they carry God's name. And for that, they need to get a bit of a sense of how holy God is which God makes very clear to them in chapter 19. The people are going to need to spend two days preparing, making themselves clean before the Lord even visits on the mountain at Sinai, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and and let them wash their garments and, and be ready for the third day. Even then they're not going to be able to approach the Lord when he comes to the mountain. Verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then we read of thunder and lightning and trumpet and trembling and smoke and fire, all capturing for us the awesome and unapproachable holiness of God. And and he warns them again then in verse 24 not to break through those boundaries and limits that were set around the mountain, not not to sneak through, break through, try to see him. Not even the priests may come through, but only those who God permits. Verse 24, the Lord said to Moses, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. There is a holiness of God that would overwhelm us and and just destroy us because we are so inherently sinful in our very nature. I can quote our friend Stephen Rarig, God is holy, 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 and we, my friends, are not, not, not. So I think we can understand this covenant at Mount Sinai in Exodus here as, as a covenant of holiness. God is holy. Beyond our comprehension, God is holy, and he is the one calling Israel to be his people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And that important context around holiness in this covenant helps us to now understand a bit more clearly the purpose of the law that God is about to give Israel in chapter 20. Because God can't be giving the law to Israel 
so that they might find their way to God because God has already brought them to himself, he said in chapter 19, verse 5. On eagles' wings, he has already brought them to himself. This covenant is about holiness. The law that's now given to them is, is a response to what God has done and an instrument for God's plans through them now as his people. So on the one hand, now that God is making them holy, setting them aside as he is, this, this law will help them get their heads around his holiness and their sin. Much like those warnings on the mountain in chapter 19 we were just thinking about. And this law, so too, will, will then mark these people out as, as distinct from all the other nations. It'll give them clarity on, on exactly what is and, and what isn't a holy way of life for them to now live as God's people among the nations. And I'd encourage you to read the laws that are given in this covenant later, even if you do already know them. But today, we might just scope out a few different sections to this law to, to, to help frame your reading later. First of all, look at the next part of chapter 20, where, where our reading did leave off. The Ten Commandments there in chapter 20, verses 3 through 17. Most of us are probably familiar with the Ten Commandments. These are, these are basic moral principles to live by. And depending on how you divide them up, there's about four commandments there focusing on our relationship with God and six about our relationships with each other. These Ten Commandments seem to come in a discrete section of the law in this covenant. that It's marked off at the end with a bookend. Look at chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. After the Ten Commandments are given, the people again see the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet and the smoke and so on, which, which forms a matching bookend, doesn't it, to, to what we just read in chapter 19, before that section of law was given. But then from chapter 20 and verses 22, the text kind of resets on the new relationship between God and his holy people, you know, that Israel doesn't take on other gods and, and how they should worship him alone as the true God. And, and that seems to set up another section of laws that runs from chapter 21 through chapter 23. And if you just flick through those pages, glimpse here and there, these seem to be more like civil laws, really. All kinds of ordinances as to how this people of God should should map this out, how they should go about life as this new nation. You know, there's instructions here about slaves and foreigners and household matters and accidental damages, things about livestock and farming and, and, and so on, and, 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 and how they should go about administering civil justice in things like that as this new nation that belongs to God. And then you'll notice in chapter 23 and verse 13, the instructions come back again once more to God and the worship he requires with, you know, with no other gods as a reminder for these people uh, that they're about to enter the promised land where they need to have this stuff you know, locked in. And that much longer section of law that follows from chapter 21 through 23 also then closes with a matching bookend to what we read before in chapter 19. 
and not in the signs and sounds and, and smoke and so on this time, but, but rather in the closing of the covenant itself in chapter 24. And you can see that there in your Bibles, just from the heading there in chapter 24. This is the closing of the covenant now. And so there we have it, the covenant that we're here to look at today, the covenant that God makes with Israel at Mount Sinai, a covenant of holiness. They've been set aside by God and for God, and and they should therefore now live in a holy way. And these laws and instructions they're given in in short form first and and then in long form in those two different sections uh, in the middle of this covenant, uh, well, they're all about how they should live in light of their holy calling and their call to holiness. And Israel are entirely on board with all of that. They're on board with becoming the holy nation of God. And I guess who wouldn't be? (laughs) After all he's done for them. It's worth us seeing that, though, in in the way that they affirm all of this in both the opening of this covenant and the closing of this covenant at the the start and at the end. First of all, if we we flick back to chapter 19, take a look at verse 3. Chapter 19, verse 3, God said to Moses to say to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in verse 8, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And after Moses received all the instructions from God, at the other end of this covenant, in chapter 24, verse 3, and again in chapter 24, verse 7, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The people have heard all those laws uh, that were given in the middle of this uh, that we've only just skipped through, and they agree. They agree. They, They will be God's possession, after all. They will be his holy nation, a kingdom of priests. They have heard what the Lord has spoken, and they will do it. They will be obedient. It all goes pear-shaped, of course. In the next section of Exodus, if if you want to read that far later on, well, Moses went back up the mountain again to receive now all kinds of details as to how this nation of priests should carry out their priestly duties. If you just flick across those pages and look at the section headings, that's going to be enough for you to get a sense of it. These now are ceremonial instructions for the nation. Details, you know, about about the Ark of the Covenant, the, the lampstand, the tabernacle, the altar and the priest's garments, the incense to be used and the oil to be used, you know, things that are going to feature in their ceremonial life as they worship this God. Moses was up there on the mountain for 40 days getting all those details. And and in that time, the people turned and did things God had so clearly forbidden as not fitting for his people. 
Pick that up with me in chapter 32 and verse 1. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Safe to say, I think, that Israel has broken covenant on day dot. But surprisingly, the covenant is not then abandoned by God. Instead, uh, Moses and God seem to role-play for us this spectacular concept and a concept that starts to get to the heart of this problem of sin that's been building all through our series. Moses and God show us both a picture of God's rightful wrath against sin on the one hand, but then an intercessor who, who, who can plead to him on behalf of the sinful people. Look at this picture too. In chapter 32 and verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. In what feels like a total spoiler alert for, for what's coming in the deeper narrative that we've been trying to tune into and starting to get anxious about, Moses here appeals to God on behalf of the nation, and he uses as his sole basis of that petition God's goodness and faithfulness to the covenants that he's already made. Remember the covenants that you made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses says. And God stays faithful to his word. Nevertheless, a judgment still comes from God if you do read the rest of the chapter through. God will follow through with his covenant promises, but the problem of sin is just becoming all the more clear for us as we track through this storyline.
while we wait for the resolution of that sin later in the series, there there are a few things we first need to stop here and, and take on board here from this covenant of holiness at Mount Sinai. First of all, we can be quite sure, can't we, that that the law and instruction given to the people was not somehow a way into God's blessing. These people were already in God's blessing on account of that covenant that he had made with Abraham 450 years earlier. They didn't just, you know, start trying to earn their way into God's favour by following the law. No, No, God had already brought them to himself on eagle's wings to work his purposes through them as his chosen and treasured possession. If you want to dig around a bit more on that, then later on, you, you want to go to scriptures like Romans chapter 7 or, or Galatians chapter 3, for example, where, where you will read that God's promise through Abraham came first and, and well before the law, therefore. Galatians 3.18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. A second thing we might then catch as part of all that is that the law given at Sinai to the human party in this covenant is not going to resolve the problem of sin. It does not give them the power to rise above that. No, in fact, the giving of the law only served to clarify the depth of their forthcoming sin, which unfolded immediately. And again, the New Testament conveys that truth too. For example, in Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. From day one, in Exodus 32 that we just glanced at, from day one, the law given through Moses only revealed the depth of human sin and thereby puts us all the more completely at the mercy of God and in complete and utter trust on his promises rather than on our own efforts at holiness. And those two truths of this scripture are vital to our theology The law is not our way into God's favour. And the law will not deal with our sin. The law is not our way into God's favour and the law will not deal with our sin. We must lock those truths in if we want to find rest for our soul. But we might keep pacing our series and track patiently with the story of Scripture in these covenants. But without giving too much away, I mean, those things should be starting to get pretty clear by now. The problem of sin running right through humanity is only going to be resolved by God, who keeps stepping in closer to people in mercy. And so we ought to pause in Exodus today and reflect on our own hearts as to these things that we can see popping out of this covenant and, and, and make sure that our religion hasn't been invested in a wrong-headed hope too. I mean, are we thinking that our following the law will you know, take us to heaven? Or that we even have the power in and of ourselves 
to follow the law. That's actually how worldly religion is wired. But the Bible teaches a very different reality, not just here in Exodus, but everywhere. The law wasn't designed to bring us to God, and nor can it resolve our problem of sin. And yet, nevertheless, as we do process those truths, the law in this covenant of holiness here, it went into the Ark of the Covenant and was carried by Israel as God's holy nation. It was given to a people called to be set apart for him. It was given to show them their sin and to give guidance, nevertheless, on how they can pursue holy lives. It served a purpose in God's plans. And so we today as Christians, you know, we ought not just dismiss this covenant of holiness here as just some matter of ancient history for those people back then. I mean, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for us to equip us and to train us in righteousness. Is it not? 2 Timothy 3. It is. And so we might give some thought about the concept of holiness that is set out here in Exodus and in this covenant. Because we too, brothers and sisters, are set apart for God. Are we not? Does not the scripture now say of us, in 1 Peter 2, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Today isn't the time for us to explore the law in the Christian life, but God willing, we are hoping in April that we might visit a sermon on another mount and let Jesus take us into the very heart of the law, so we might have opportunity to explore on that front then. For today, in terms of our roadmap on covenant We might rather just pause and observe that the law isn't and wasn't the way into God's grace. Grace, rather, comes first. And nor was the law given to us to resolve all our sin. For that, we have to trace further into Scripture. But for now... Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege as always to open your scripture. And we pray, Father, that you would move us more to spend more time in scriptures like Exodus here and to think through the history of what you've been doing. Help us to understand as we read the place of Israel in your greater plan of salvation and and the place, therefore, of the law too. Again, Father, in this scripture, we, we see the ugliness of human sin and therefore we see your awesome holiness all the more clearly against it. Thank you, Father, for being patient with us. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Thank you for being our God when when we are so unworthy. 
We pray that you would show us and equip us and teach us and strengthen us from all of your scriptures. Thank you that you have worked plans to save us. We know where this ends in this series, that that in Jesus there is salvation for all who trust. And and we thank you that we can know that. But as we journey through scriptures to, to, to figure out the history of what you did towards that end, Father, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves more clearly and to see you more brightly and to see your love for us in Jesus all the more deeply. And we pray these things and ask for your blessing in his name. Amen.